Just before I move into the main body of what I'd like to be talking about this morning, let me read very briefly from a quite new book by Martin Laird. You'll know Martin Laird's work, I'm sure, and you'll see this new book in the bookstall. This is the one called An Ocean of Light. But just to bring back into focus some of what we were reflecting on yesterday, here he is talking about the experience of a young boy in a swimming pool. I alternated between sunbathing and swimming. When I was in the pool, something kept drawing me back to the huge slide. You had to be ten to go down it, so I had just three to go. It was solidly fixed to the concrete foundation of the pool, so that it could not suddenly decide to reposition itself at another location in the pool. I would go underwater and attach myself to one of the slide's foundations. This allowed me to be still and make no effort to prevent myself from floating back up to the top. I liked seeing how long I could hold my breath underwater over 75 seconds. I knew there were a lot of other people in the pool, but I couldn't make them out underwater. One day I stole my big brother's goggles. Now I could see clearly what things looked like from underwater, which people above the water could not see. Time stopped. All the water in the very large pool was shot through with light. Not just slats of light, but the entire pool was light. It did not look like this from above water. I could see clearly all the separate people swimming in the pool. Yet I could not say that I was quite watching them. There were only all these people. They were me. We were all one in the illuminating water of God. We were each individual bodies, but at the same time we were all one body. Again, at the age of seven, I had none of this language. And in many ways, I regret that I now do. <laughs> For language obscures the simplicity of the simple fact. Not only is that a very particularly vivid evocation of the swimming, immersive, synesthetic openness that we were trying to reflect on a bit yesterday, it also says something about what happens when we meditate together. And I'd venture the thought that some of the experience of meditating together is just a little like that experience of seeing the other swimmers in the water or sensing the other swimmers in the water. When you're meditating together, the other person, the other people, they're not people with whom you have to be doing business, negotiating, one-to-one, -one, click, click, click. They are there, as Martin says. They are there, and they are you, all in the light. So I begin with that, not simply because it's a, a particularly beautiful passage about the body coming to rest, 
but because it pushes us just a little bit in the direction of some further thoughts about the work we do together in this connection. And as you'll see in a while, that's a theme I want to have somewhere on the horizon of our thoughts this morning. But as I warned you last night, there's going to be a little bit of theology this morning. So bear with me and tune out when appropriate. (laughs) One of the points which we were trying to get into focus last night was the notion that our thinking, our experiencing, our remembering, our imagining, and our meditating are all of them things that bodies do. Not things that spirits do with an unwelcome encumbrance, just to make it more interesting, but things that bodies do. And that raises the very interesting question, which theologians have spilled a lot of ink on over the years. In what sense are you and I, as bodies, made in God's image? To say bluntly, my body is the image of God, can sound or feel just a bit strange. There's a very long tradition in the Christian church of saying, essentially, it is the spirit that is in the image of God, because the spirit is free or intelligent or even loving. And you can sort of see what that means. But the problem is that you move rapidly from there to saying, the spirit is free and intelligent and loving, and the body isn't. And you're back to the spirit chained to the lump of stuff model, which really won't do. Look at the way the creation story unfolds in the first chapter of Genesis. God breathes into Adam so that this lump of stuff becomes a living being. But it's not that this living being is a mixture of the breath of God and a lot of neutral material. The living being is now God's image. God makes human beings male and female. That's to say, the differentiation between persons is part of the image of God. In the image of God, God created them male and female created he them. And without entering into the shark-infested waters of gender politics these days, (laughs) the point is surely that the image of God is bound up with the physicality of what is made. So we could put it like this. It's not that inside us there is something that is loving and intelligent and free. It is that the way creatures in this world can be loving and intelligent and free is by being embodied spirits. The loving, the intelligence, the freedom is necessarily expressed in 
soaking through the material world. As, again, various writers in and out of scripture have said in various ways, it's not much use being loving, intelligent, and free in here if everything you visibly are and do cries out slavery, stupidity, and hatred. <laughs> so the image of God is the matter of that freedom and intelligence and love soaking through the body that we are. And in that sense, imaging the God who made us. The mistake that some theologians made, I suppose, was God is loving, free, and intelligent, and God is pure spirit. Therefore, for us to be loving, free, and intelligent, we have to be pure spirit. But actually, the nice thing is that God likes to see the likeness of God in what isn't God. That's the point of creation, in case we've missed it. God likes to see the divine face and the divine life reflected in what is absolutely not God. And God draws out that mysterious likeness to God's own life in what is different. And so, in us, our bodies, God draws out the divine likeness. The body bears the image. There's one Greek theologian of the Middle Ages who ventures the very bold thought that in this sense, at least, human beings are more like God than angels are. Angels do a very good job of imitating God as far as it goes. But human beings imitate the God who enters into the depths of the material world, who is active, as we said yesterday, active in the whole organization of the material world and active above all in that one transforming and transfiguring life, which is Jesus. Angels can't do that. Angels are all very well in their way. But, says St. Gregory Palamas, human beings have just a little bit of an edge here because they can do the incarnate thing, and angels don't. My dear friend Sarah Maitland once wrote a short story in a series of short stories about encounters with her guardian angel. Very funny, as you'd expect from Sarah. And one of the most poignant and memorable of these was an encounter with the guardian angel on Good Friday. Sarah discovers the guardian angel in floods of tears. And says, why, what's, what's the matter? Guardian angels aren't supposed to be upset. And the guardian angel says, today is the one day when we angels are all reminded of what it is that we can never know and you and God know. <laughs> the experience of death and flesh, of pain and emptiness, all held, all transfigured. Powerful picture, that. So, with all due respect to the angels, of whom this room is as full as every space is, with all due respect to the angels, and I say that with a slight quiver down my spine, <laughs> there are some reasons in the mind of God for angels not being the whole story about creation, and us having that very distinctive role of reflecting godlikeness in God-otherness.
And that perhaps might make our antennae twitch a little bit as we read certain parts of the Bible. God seems very interested in all sorts of points in the Bible, in the way in which physical touch and contact being earthed become a key part of encounter with God. When Moses sees the burning bush, of course, God tells him to do exactly what we've just done and take off our shoes. Because somehow that naked contact of skin on soil is part of fully receiving the blazing epiphany of God's glory. No protection, no mediation, skin on soil, and God is there. But to me, one of the most instructive and even entertaining stories about this is the visit of the Syrian general Naaman to the prophet Elisha. You remember that when Naaman comes to be cured of his leprosy by Elisha, Elisha tells him in a slightly cavalier way, go and dip yourself seven times in the river. And Naaman goes off indignantly and says to his servants, I expected that the prophet would come out and wave his hands around and you know, do magic stuff. <laughs> and the servants of Naaman rather touchingly say, if he'd asked you to do something difficult, you'd have done it. Isn't it worth doing something absolutely simple and just making the physical contact with the water? And Naaman duly, rather grumpily, one imagines, enters the Jordan and he comes out of it and, do you remember? His flesh was like the flesh of a little child. Isn't that a telling image there? Because like a little child, he has again made contact with what's there. And that very prosaic contact is what transforms. Naaman would like Elisha to make magic passes over him, not touch him. And Elisha simply says, you want to be clean? Wash. That's what water's for. Back to basics. The naked foot on the soil, the bare touch of liquid on flesh, and the childlikeness restored in that moment. But it goes on, doesn't it? When Jesus comes to be baptized by John, John, in effect, says, you don't need this. And Jesus says, actually, yes, I do. Because I need to be here with you physically in the water, receiving the baptism you give to everybody else. I want to be alongside all those other bodies in the water. Back to Martin's image again. I want to be here with them. That's my identification with fleshliness. And in his own ministry, of course, Jesus' miracles of healing again and again seem to focus very profoundly on touch and physical involvement of various kinds the touch given to the unclean 
the grasping of the diseased flesh of another. The contact with the polluting woman with the issue of blood. The healing of the man whose speech and hearing are impaired. He put his hands in his ears, he spat, he touched his tongue and said, be open, Africa. All this physicality, the spittle and the clay in the healing of the blind man in John's Gospel, all this physicality, as if at every stage Jesus seeks to remind us that what he's doing is not communicating spiritual instruction in a nice, safe, sanitized way, but being with us in the place where we inhabit and receive. And he inhabits and receives along with us, his baptism of John, and he uses the stuff of the world and the stuff of his body to make healing contact. So it's not entirely surprising that what he tells his disciples to do is not just to love one another, and you might say any fool can do that. He tells them to baptize and share bread and wine. He tells them that their love will be a matter expressed in visible community, created by physical touch in baptism, sustained by physical contact in the Lord's Supper. He tells them that what they eat will be their way of being in touch with him. Whenever you do this, do it to remember me. What they eat and drink will be the way they are in touch with him. Not through their memories, their ideas, their minds, but here in the stuff of bread and wine. A sacrament in the life of the Christian community is, after all, not just a reminder of something else. After all, we might just as well meet every week and look at a picture of the Last Supper or something like that and be reminded. But just as when we kiss somebody that we love, that's not something that reminds you of something else but is the act of love in the moment. So the sacrament is not a reminder of something else. It is the act of love in that moment. We don't, I think, go around kissing our partners, our children, our parents, to remind ourselves that there is a reality somewhere else called our love for them. What the love means is, in that moment, is the kiss. And what the love of God and our love for one another mean in the moment is the eating and drinking together with the risen Jesus. The great American Catholic novelist Flannery O'Connor recorded an uncomfortable evening's discussion with some other literary people where somebody else was um, spreading themselves on the subject of what a wonderful symbol the Eucharist was. And Flannery O'Connor, a blunt-spoken 
southern farmer's daughter, said, if it's just a symbol, to hell with it. <laughs> Meaning, I suppose what I've just said, it is what it is. It is the enactment. It's not the reminder. It's not the substitute or the cipher or the code for something else. It's what it is. And with all that theological and biblical background in mind, <clears throat> we're drawn back to the ways in which our bodiliness, our bodily reality and experience here and now can be enhanced, focused, whatever we want to say, by physical discipline by the sheer discipline of the stillness of the body, but also by disciplines, perhaps not quite the right word, but the whole environment of significant action that the Christian tradition offers us. Not just the life of the sacraments, but what's conventionally called the sacramentals, the routine prosaic signs by which we embody the meaning we live by. The bowing of the head, the sign of the cross, and so on. About um, 20 years ago, I led a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, mostly people from the diocese where I then worked in South Wales. A very mixed group, not particularly high church. What I noticed, though, with slight amusement during the week was all these worthy people from Cumbran and Ebervale and Abergavenny going native in the Holy Land. <laughs> That's to say, observing and sensing how in the holy places people are intensely physical in their responses. You go into the Holy Sepulchre, and the first thing you see, usually, is a lot of ancient grannies from Cyprus <laughs> rubbing away at the stone of anointing where the body of Jesus is supposed to have been laid, rubbing their handkerchiefs and their aprons and their veils on the stone, and sometimes pouring oil on the stone and smoothing it in. And somehow that, that expresses what the holy places do. They draw you in, they make you want to touch, and they give you that extraordinary sense of touching what the incarnate God touched, just as the ground under your feet is in some sense the ground that the incarnate God walked on, and you need to be there in your body. And so, as I say, over the week, I watched my beloved friends from the diocese kissing more things, crossing themselves more, and generally sinking into the bodiliness, the locatedness of grace there, knowing that if they were there in that holy place, they'd better behave as if they were in a real place, making contact, making that physical touch. And that, perhaps, says something about the role of 
what I'll call ritual habit in our meditating and discipling lives. We've, I think, largely got over the neuroses about superstition. And we can recognize and should recognize that, of course, there are idolatrous and obsessive-compulsive and all sorts of other rather unsatisfactory reasons for ritual behavior. But because there are some bad reasons for ritual behavior doesn't mean there are no good ones. And the good ones have to do with that sense of keeping ourselves anchored in the body and the place. When I first began celebrating the Eucharist for a community of contemplative nuns many years ago, I was always struck by the enormous signs of the cross that they would make. So we're taking in about as much as they conceivably could. And it struck me then and strikes me now as really quite a good approach to it. If you're going to do it, do it. Don't just nervously <laughs> scratch at your buttons. But, but do it. Because, again, it's an anchoring thing. It plugs you in to your own physical reality and that of others. And developing and sustaining ritual habits, constructing a space of worship, private and public, where these things are available to you, is, I would say, a very significant element in growing in meditative presence, in inhabiting and receiving, creating a whole habitat that nurtures practice and gives you space to be your body. I found the other day um, in an essay by an American Greek Orthodox theologian something which bears a little bit on this and I'll read you just a few passages here. I'll simply present some passages from the church's early thinkers that taken together build a concise and coherent orthodox vision of otherness, the icon, the space of the church. We'll see that in these passages the divine otherness is different from but not opposed to human familiarity. About our contemplation of the divine, Dionysius says, we cannot be raised up to intelligible contemplation without mediation. We need elevations that we are at home with, that are natural to us. At home with literally translates the Greek eikion, according to its derivation from oikos, meaning house. Human beings, or at least the majority of us, are not capable of directly contemplating anything that is not visible. We need a means of contemplation that we can be at home with, that is familiar, even though the divine itself is not. And what is most familiar to us is the bodily, what we can sense. But if the body is to be more than just familiar, if it is to become a means of contemplation, it must become charged with the divine otherness. And this charging of bodies with otherness cannot happen without a space. First and foremost, because the contemplation of a body requires the spatial differentiation of the eye from the body that it sees. Not every space is amenable to the act of contemplation. 
so we also require space of a certain kind, an exemplary space established for the contemplation of bodies as symbols rather than the use of them as tools. It's an interesting passage. I might want to question one or two bits of the phraseology there. But I think you can see what that writer is after. The space that we use in worship is a space where, as we were reminded in that reading from Merton earlier on, we have space to breathe, literally and metaphorically. We have space to see and time to see. We have what I called earlier a habitat in which our perception can grow and deepen. We have a release from the pressure of making things happen, once again, the reading we heard earlier. And all of this is one reason why the life of meditation and contemplation is not at odds with the life of the liturgy. Or indeed, with the use, the intelligent and prayerful use of material aids and supports and physical practices. St. Teresa of Avila recommended her nuns to carry a little picture of Jesus around with them in their pockets and just pat it occasionally. Those of us who carry a prayer rope or a holding cross or a rosary or some such thing will know what she meant. You may not exactly be ascending to the seventh heaven when you slip your hand into your pocket and just finger something. But once again, it's a way of being anchored where you are, who you are, the physical person you are, just making contact with that link to the physical reality of God among us. And in terms of practical advice for maintaining a meditative habit, having those physical reminders is, I'd say, of almost disproportionate importance for many of us, and I guess for many of you. Teresa was reflecting a bit on a debate which was quite live in the 16th century as it had been in the Middle Ages. Does there come a point in your life of prayer where you stop meditating on the stories of the Gospels? Some spiritual writers seem to say, yes, there's a point where you stop thinking about Jesus, stop thinking about Jesus of Nazareth because you're further forward or deeper in to the reality of the triune God. Others say, well, obviously there's no point at which you are out of touch with Jesus of Nazareth. But it seems to me, and I think this is part of what Teresa is arguing when she reflects on this, the question is wrongly put. Do you always have to be thinking about Jesus of Nazareth in your prayer? Well, no, because thinking is not it. Are you ever out of touch with Jesus of Nazareth in your prayer? God forbid, because it is your actual, physical, historical, material unity with Christ in Christ's body on earth that gives you the grace to pray. So the question really dissolves when you look at it hard. 
But lest you imagine that somehow there's a stage at which you can cut loose from Jesus of Nazareth, putting his hands in a deaf man's ears and spitting and touching his tongue, lest you imagine you can cut loose from that, keep the signs of the incarnate Jesus within reach, quite literally. Keep the holding cross or the picture in your pocket and touch it to remind yourself where your roots are, the roots of your spiritual and material identity in Christ. So, finally, just a couple of thoughts on one implication of this, which I'd like to think about a bit more this afternoon. All of this implies that it is crucial for our well-being that we embrace and to some extent understand our limits as finite physical beings. We grow, we change, we suffer, we fail, we try again. And in Samuel Beckett's wonderful phrase, we fail better. (laughs) And the embrace of our limits is one of the toughest things we as human beings are confronted with, whether as individuals or as a culture. Every generation has its own fantasy, doesn't it, of transcending limits, and we have ours, and I'll say a bit more about that later on. But accepting limits, which finally means accepting the fact that we're going to, you know, die, (laughs) that is unwelcome stuff for us. And yet, this failing and wearing down body is indisputably who we are and where we are, as I've said. And its embrace is not a resignation to mortality in the sense of extinction, but the willing acceptance of the place we've been given to live and the roots that nourish us where we now are in this moment. Inhabiting and receiving. Martin Laird, in the book I quoted at the beginning, has a whole wonderful section on the receiving mind. He distinguishes in that book between the reactive mind, busily coping with what comes at it and sort of pushing back, the receptive mind, which takes in, absorbs, lives with, and at last the luminous mind, where dualities are overcome and we're with him in the swimming pool. But there's another writer who speaks a bit about this, and what I'd like to do is just to finish by reading a poem by Scott Cairns, a very distinguished American Christian poet. And I think you'll see in this poem something of what we're talking about, something of the need to let go of our impatience with where we are, 
to embrace the path we're on, to embrace the next step as the next step, not the one after, which we often want to do. And this is a poem called The Fragile Surround. A veiling space in which we live and move and chance to glimpse the trembling import of our late suspected being and, well, yes, the opening occasion of a guess that when we're after meaning, more is always likelier to please than the common taste of less with which our eager suppositions are in the main rewarded. I'm thinking such lacunae as this cove may lend us all their latent agency each and every time we enter, willing to attend the puzzle, leaning into ambiguity, aloof to any fear accompanying what bit we witness in the local, endless, fraught fragility of every passing scene. Keep up. I too had chance occasion once to lean to choose between two such modes of travel, that of knowing clearly what I meant to see, and on the other hand, not so sure, but eager for the road's divergences to obtain to something skirting illumination. If I sigh now, it's not so much for me as for the prospect of a road constructed as we go, bearing both our burdens and ourselves always just ahead and bearing on. And sure, we're hoping to proceed, to get somewhere, and much of our attention speeds ahead. My point, I now suppose, has more to do with honouring the road itself, the ragged, dust-glazed bracken by the side, and giving each attendant host its due, the roebuck, woodchuck, turtle and the toad, the hawk, the raucous jay or raven yammering, the fleet and near-angelic wren and chickadee, the modest beetle, humble bee, blind ant. Eager for the road's divergences to obtain to something skirting illumination. A road constructed as we go, bearing both our burdens and ourselves, always just ahead and bearing on. My point has more to do with honouring the road itself, giving each attendant host the word its due. <laughs>